On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. Just a matter of decades ago, triathlon was a brand new sport and coaches were just beginning to experiment with training. This week, we hear the story of how Training Peaks co-founder Joe Friel took a bad stroke of luck and used it to write one of the most recognized training manuals today. Hey everybody, Dave here, and on this week's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, I sit down with Joe Frill. Joe is the co-founder of Training Peaks, the author of the Training Bible series, as well as numerous other books, and has been coaching for over 30 years. This interview is very personal to me in that I have the opportunity to travel around the world with Joe Frill teaching other coaches with our Training Peaks University. However, when I first started coaching, most of the information that I was getting was out of Joe's books. And at that time, I always wished, man, if I could just sit down and have dinner with Joe Frill and pick his brain, how great would that be? Well, fast forward four years, I'm working for Training Peaks, and I'm in Brisbane, Australia, and all of a sudden it occurs to me that I'm in Australia with Joe Frill, and that night we were going to be having dinner. And so Joe has been a mentor to me, um, even to this day. I continue to learn from him. We've done over 60 Training Peaks universities, and each time I learn something new. So we sat down and we talked about what advice does Joe have for a coach just starting out, as well as those looking to grow their business. I hope you enjoy. All right, this is Dave Shell here, the Director of Education at Training Peaks, and we are in Chicago, Illinois. We just finished up at Training Peaks University, and we're sitting here with Joe Frill. Joe, I wanted to have you on um, the podcast. Just you and I have had a lot of opportunity to travel together, and I've heard a lot of your stories and a lot of the stories about how Training Peaks came to be. Um, you and I were in San Diego, I believe, and you told me a story that I'd never heard before, And it was about you getting sick, and it ultimately led to you writing the first Training Bible um, book. And I just wanted to know if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, it was kind of a strange uh, turn of events for the better. It actually seemed like for the worse at the the time. Basically, I started writing for a cycling magazine, Velo Press, or Velo Magazine, in about 1992, and they liked the stuff I was writing, and so they had a sister company uh, for the magazine that was a publishing house, a book publishing house, and they asked me if I'd write a book. And I said, no, I didn't have time. I was training 15 hours a week or whatever it was, and I was coaching full-time and, and my family and everything else. I just didn't have time to write a book. It never struck me as being a good idea. Like I, I would never really sell any books anyway, so I wasn't too concerned about it. And so they kind of kept asking me over time to do it, and I kept rejecting the idea. And then in 1994, I believe it was, I went to a world championship in Australia, duathlon. And uh, my wife and I stayed there for like two weeks. And when I came back, I had what I thought was a bad cold. Uh, It lingered and lingered until, this is now like two months later, in March of 95, and I still had this cold and wouldn't go away, and my training was terrible and so forth. So finally I went to see my doctor, and after a long series of tests that went on for a couple of weeks, they finally discovered that I had a, a virus in my heart, and it seems like I'd probably gotten it in, in Australia, it's given the timing, 
and the fact that we were in the uh, the Blue Mountains, kind of in the out in the boonies for several days, and there were these birds that would come down and eat out of the palm of my hand, you know, crackers or whatever I had. And I think, and so the virus I had was one type that's typically carried by birds. So I kind of put that all together and assumed I got got it from those birds. And uh, so my doctor sent me to see a cardiologist because this virus was in my heart and affecting what my heart was doing besides just having a cold uh, symptoms also. And the cardiologist said, yeah, you've got a you've got a pretty bad situation here. I had a valve that wasn't closing all the way and something was regurgitating and that I should, uh, I should not do anything that involves exercise, raise my heart rate for the next X number of weeks or perhaps months. He didn't know how long it would be. But uh, it, it was going to be quite a long time, he thought, before the, so the virus would run its course. And so I had to quit training. And so all of a sudden, I wound up with like 15 extra hours a week. And so I uh, went, contacted the, the publishing house again and said, hey, it looks like I've got time all of a sudden here. So I agreed to, to write the book. That book was the Cyclist Training Bible. I didn't write it thinking that I was going to sell books. I really wrote it just so I could put on, on paper my kind of my own philosophy and methodology of training athletes, uh, thinking that maybe the book will sell a few hundred copies, but, you know, give me a chance to kind of ref- defend what I've done all these years and, and make sure I understand what I'm doing by trying to explain it. And uh, so I wrote the book, and it came out like in, what, 96 or 97. I forgot exactly the timing now. And uh, lo and behold, the book sold like 5,000 copies the first month, and it wound up being in a matter of a few uh, a year or so the best-selling book that had ever been written in, the, in that genre, which was turning for, for uh, bike races. And um, so that's how it all got started. It was really just kind of a strange mixture of events that all occurred that I wasn't happy to go through at the time, but it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah, it's a, a kind of serendipitous. And, and now you look at us almost 20 years later, or about 20 years later, and you've got the Cyclist Training Bible, the Triathlete Training Bible, Power Meter Handbook, um, Fast After 50, and you've sold quite a bit of books. And not only that, but you've got multiple editions of those books. And so it just shows the desire of both the athletes and coaches to continue learning and, and benefiting from your knowledge. And so what's it like for you now to, like I said, we're here in Chicago, we're with a room full of coaches. What's it like to have those coaches still looking up to you to learn from you and, and benefit from your knowledge? Well, I'd have to say that it's one of the most enjoyable things I do is to come do these uh, Turning Peaks University for, for coaches. As you know, you and I do these all over the world, and uh, we do several a year on what we're at now, 10 or 12 or something like that a year. Um, and it's lots of fun for me because I, I, I enjoy talking to coaches. Um, one, one thing I really enjoy is I'm, I'm older than all the coaches I talk to. It's, I don't think I've ever found a coach older than me yet in any of our TPUs. And so I, I enjoy taking them back to the history of how these things came about uh, I had a double major in my undergraduate work in college, and one of the majors was history. To this day, I, I love everything that has to do with history, and especially history in my field of study, which is basically exercise and sport, physiology. And so the history of that stuff for me is fascinating. So to go back and to be able to talk to, to coaches about how these things came to be from my personal experience 
uh, for me, is just it's very gratifying and fun to see that some of them are really interested in the fact that what they're doing has a has a history associated with it that goes back many decades, in fact, and sometimes beyond decades. So it's uh, it's been a lot of fun for me, and I, I enjoy doing it. I don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing this. I'd be at home uh, probably reading books on history and, and uh, trying to write more books myself, but I kind of think maybe I'm getting to the end of the writing thing now. I'd be more interested in reading books than I would be in writing books right now. So Training Peaks was founded back in 1999, but prior to that you had been coaching quite a bit of athletes without the help of the Internet. So can you just tell us a little bit about what your day looked like when you were coaching via mail and fax? Yeah, I started actually coaching uh, in 1980, uh, uh, coaching adult athletes. Before that, I was a high school track coach. I started coaching in 1980, um, and when I first started, it was really just kind of a fluke. I owned a running store, which began to grow when I bought the bike store next door and uh, started selling triathlon stuff also. So we were the store was involved in several sports. And people would come in to me. They knew I had a degree in, in sport exercise science. And they would come in to me asking questions about how do they train for a 10K or a bike race or, or a triathlon or whatever it may be. And so I would basically, while I'm selling them a pair of shoes or selling them a bike, I would tell them about how to train, what to do for their, you know, in the coming month or something like that. And it was all just very simple, just kind of like, you know, this is what I think and this is my opinion. This is what you might want to do. And by the way, that'll be twenty nine ninety five for a pair of shoes. Uh, so it all just kind of blended together. But after what began to happen starting in about 1980-81 is that people would come in not even buying anything and just want free information on how to train for whatever it was they were training for. And I began to realize this was taking time away from my uh, duties of being a business owner, retail owner, and so I decided I needed to scare these people away somehow. I didn't want to tell them not to ask me questions or tell them to leave, but somehow scare them away. So I decided to charge for it. Um, I would charge $5. If they wanted free information like that and had to train for an event, I would charge them $5. And I figured nobody would pay $5 to find out what my opinion was on how they would train. And actually, it had just the opposite effect. People didn't feel guilty about coming in and taking my time to ask me questions if they're going to pay me $5 to give them a one-month training plan or something like that. So I realized that that wasn't going to work, and the only thing I could see that would work is just to raise the price. So I went to $10. Again, that didn't seem to phase anybody, and the price just kept going up. And eventually I got to around $72, I recall. $72 was what it cost to, for a single person back then to join a health club in town. And I figured, well, this is kind of like the same sort of thing. So I was charging $72 a month. And I began to realize that I was making more money coaching athletes than I was in the retail business. The retail business is very, very difficult to make a, a living at because everybody else comes first. The employees, the rent on the, off, on the space you have, the, uh, the bank for loans that you've taken out, the suppliers for all the equipment you, you're buying. Everybody comes before you, and if there's anything left at the end, then the owner of the store gets it, and by that time there's often very little or nothing at all. And so consequently, it's very, very difficult to make money. So I'm making more money coaching, doing something I had no plans to do whatsoever, but it somehow was working out for me. And so I finally sold my retail store 
because I was finding I was enjoying the coaching more also besides making more money. Sold that in 1987 and went into coaching. And at this point now, I'm, I'm, I'm coaching about probably about 30 athletes at $72 a month. And I realized that if I was going to make it, I need to get something like 72 clients was the number I came up with at $72 a month. You can run the numbers yourself see what that means. But $72 a month with 72 clients, I'd be able to pay the bills and I would feel pretty good about how I was doing. But so in the meantime, though, I had to get a day job. So I got a day job. So I'm working at my day job, coming home at night and coaching athletes, uh, writing training plans. Basically, I would, most of my athletes by this time were living uh, in a range where I couldn't meet them face to face anymore, like I had done at the store. So I was either mailing to them or I was faxing their workouts to them. And then on the weekends, they would fax back to me their uh, completed logs. The, what I gave them was, was basically a, a calendar with a workout on it. And there was space there where they could write in their comments. And so they would fax that back to me at the end of the week on Sundays, typically. And so Monday morning when I would get up on my desk in my office, there would be all this rolled up fax paper laying there that had been, you know, 70 some clients by this time, by, by about 1992, I had 72 clients. So my desk is just covered with all this paper every Monday morning. And I have to go through and shuffle them, get them, you know, pair up the right athletes' pages together in the right order, staple them, and so forth. And that could take an hour just doing that. And, um, and then keeping track of all, and going through all the notes on all the stuff they had written by hand on their schedule before they faxed it back to me. And uh, then going to their master file, which I kept on every athlete, and recording things, the details of what they had told me about their workouts and how things were going, plan, and, then, and then plan ahead for what the coming week or two weeks is going to be like, what types of workouts we were going to do. Uh, when I got that all done, then the same process started all over again. I would fax that back to them at one week schedule or two week schedule, whatever it may be. And so this went on on a daily, on a weekly basis. Um, it was pretty much a pain in the butt. But that was really about the only things we had available to us in the early 90s. And, you know, by the mid-90s, I had clients all over the world. And so there wasn't really any other way of communicating with them. Email was starting to come out. And so I was began to, in the late 90s, attach workouts to emails. And uh, so when they came back, then I'd have to print those out and uh, again record data into their files so I could keep track of how their training was going. And uh, so anyway, it, it was really a very tedious process, very, very time-consuming. It would take hours and hours and hours to, to keep up with 72 clients. I had, uh, uh, you know, by that time, by 90, early 90s, 93 or so, I had, I had uh, quit my day jobs, and I was just coaching full-time. And it was pretty much an all-day job. I'm working seven days a week, a good eight, nine hours a day, sometimes ten hours a day, just trying to keep up with all the, the data, paperwork for seven, 72 clients, and then writing schedules for them and fax them back and, or email them back in whichever case I was doing it with them. And uh, so very, very tedious process, very time-consuming, not, not efficient whatsoever, but really all we had available at that time. And now, what do you think about today when you see how far we've come? Um, you had the opportunity to test one of the first power meters, and now we have devices that measure power for running. It, it seems to be growing exponentially. So 
What are your thoughts as you see where we're at today compared to where you were at in, say, early 90s? Yeah, the world has changed tremendously and, and continues to change at a rapid pace, even more rapid, it seems like, now than even in back then. The number of new things coming down the pike now, new technologies, is really truly amazing. But it, it was... Um, a great high opener to see things like power meters come along. I can recall when the first power meter came out, I had never heard of a power meter before. And uh, I, I heard about it because Greg LeMond was going to use one early 90s to try to get back into uh, race form again so he could do well at uh, the Tour de France. And he hired a new coach who I believe was Belgian, if I recall right. It may have been Dutch. Anyway, and this, this coach uh, was going to have... Lamont start using a power meter. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of a power meter, and that was in a magazine I was reading, like bicycling magazine, I think. And so, you know, I, I didn't know what it was. I, I sounded like it must be something important if Greg Lamont was going to use it. So I began to try to find all I could on the topic, but there wasn't anything. You know, there was no Google. I couldn't Google power meter and find out what it was. You just have to wait for the magazine to come out and see if they mention it again the next month. And so that became the search. And over time, I finally began to figure out what a power meter was. And uh, then when I found out I was going to write that book, that Cyclist Turning Bible, I realized I ought to include something about power meters in it. So I wrote to uh, uh, Uli Schobert, who was the, uh, the owner and the, the guy who invented the power meter at, at SRM, and asked him if I could borrow a power meter for three months to try it out just so I could write about it. And he said, sure. So he sent me one. And, and so I finally got a chance to try out a power meter for the very first time. I, I didn't really have, you know, for three months, you really can't learn much. I got a little bit of information. I began to figure out what it was all about. But I had no, by no means any ideas of how to use it. And uh, so in that first book I wrote, I think I had like two or three paragraphs about power meters in one of the chapters. But the very end of the book, in the uh, um, uh, prologue, in the epilogue, I wrote a piece about how I thought power meters were probably going to become the, the wave of the future, but prices would have to come down. And again, like one paragraph there about power meters, that wound up uh, in inspiring some guy from Boston who was a uh, mechanical engineer uh, and a cyclist to uh, see if he could come up with a less expensive power meter and so that was when, and he called me one day and said he can't, he'd, he'd done this. He had a less expensive power meter. Could he come out to Colorado where I lived and showed it to me? And so certainly I said yes. And so he flew out with his partner and they showed me the very first power tap. And so I had like prototype number three, and, um, which I think is still hanging in my garage someplace. And uh, so that was the next time I was able to ride in a power meter. This is several years after I had tried out the SRM. And so this is like 1990, 1998 or 99. So I'm trying out a power meter again, and they let me keep this one. So now I had my own power meter, and I began to give it a lot more thought, um, what these numbers mean and what's going on. And, and that began to produce some of the changes I made in terms of like the cyclist training Bible, how to, how to measure intensity, how to, um, how to determine what, how the athlete's performance is, is going, but it was all very crude at first. 
it's changed a tremendous amount since then, especially because of Andy Coggan, who brought so much to the to the field of power training, which has really affected other areas of training besides power. So yeah, they, it's it's just phenomenal what has happened to uh, devices, um, technology, in uh, in training for sport. I'm speaking to a a class in. Um, University of Pennsylvania next month, I think it is October, and uh, there are people who are working in the medical field, and they use wearable technology, but they realize that we're Training Peaks is ahead of the curve in terms of being able to analyze the data and be able to apply it to uh, to what the athletes should be doing going forward based on what we know about the athlete's history given this data. And they're to the point where they can measure this stuff, but they're not beyond that point here where they can use the data to, for, for the betterment of the, the patient in this case, or the customer. And so they want to hear what we do and how we came about doing all this stuff. And so it's, it's kind of like we're on the cutting edge in so many areas that uh, even the medical profession is interested in, in what we're doing in, in sport because they can benefit from it also. So it's been a tremendous ride, and, and there's no end to it. Uh, there's going to be lots more stuff like this coming down the line. It'll, be, it'll actually get quite difficult to keep up with all of it as fast as it happens anymore. I'm, I'm aware of many things right now that aren't on the market yet that are amazing, just amazing stuff. And all we need is for these things to, for the price to come down on most of it. Most of it is pretty high priced right now, but just as power meters, the price will come down. It'll become a lot more popular, and we'll be able to do things that we've never even dreamed of being able to do just, you know, even a few years ago. So it's it's been a very fun and rewarding time to go through seeing all this happen with technology and with training peaks and, and all of this stuff. So one of the things you talk about when we talk to the coaches at Training Peaks University, um, you used to have a slide on it. I probably removed it on you. Um, but it was measure what matters. and Or, or that, that which is measured improves, actually, is on what you had. And so what does that mean to you, and, and how would you apply that to, is it just for training, or, or would you also apply it to business? Well, I think it, it applies to all aspects of life. If there is some something in in a person's life that they would like to see improve, and and it's some, in some way measurable, what the person needs to start doing is measuring that thing. You know, if you if you want to change your body weight, if you want to lose weight to become a better climber, for example, in cycling or runner, um, and you never step on the scales, you know, you really don't know how you're doing. It's just a wish and a hope is all it is. As soon as you start stepping on the scales and seeing what's going on, then you say, aha, I've got a problem, or I'm making progress, or I need to do this, or I need to do that. So things start to improve. If you, if you want more money in the bank, you need to look at your bank account occasionally and see how your, how your account is doing. Uh, if you don't look, it's just a wish and hope is all it is. It's the same with sport. That's the way sport is. If you really want to get better at something, figure out what it is that can be measured which is related to the outcome you're seeking and then begin to measure that on a regular basis so you can see what kind of progress you're making. If you never do that, it's just a wish and a hope. As soon as you start measuring it, I, will almost, I can almost guarantee you it'll improve. You'll become better at whatever it may be just because you begin to become aware of it 
and it stays high uppermost in your mind whenever this general topic comes up. I want to become faster. I want to get my FTP up higher on the bike or whatever it may be. As soon as you start thinking about that and you come up with a way of measuring this, um, like by using the graphs and charts and such we have in the dashboard at Turning Peaks, from that information, you can begin to realize what is needed, how to go about getting to the, the end goal uh, of improving your performance. So I, I've, that's always been my philosophy is that that which is measured improves. And that's always a starting point. Measure whatever it is you want to improve. Now, you just mentioned a little um, while ago is that now there's just so many devices coming out and almost anything can be measured. So what kind of advice would you have for a coach now where it's, it can almost be overwhelming where there's so much to measure? What do you pay attention to? Yeah, there is. We're, we're overwhelmed with data now. When I first started doing this, there, there was the only data I really had was maybe if it was a runner, what their what their pace was when they were on a track. Otherwise, they probably don't know if they're on the road exactly what their pace was. There weren't very many heart rate monitors in the 1980s, uh, especially early 1980s. So there wasn't any data like that. The, really, the only data there was was the most important data we had at that time was how the athlete feel. What was their, basically, their rating of perceived exertion, or RPE. On a scale of 1 to 10, how hard was it? That was, that was it. That was the most important data we had. Everything else was uh, somewhat superfluous to that, so we just simply get feedback on how the athletes felt, and from that make decisions about what they ought to be doing going forward. Well, now we're just, it's just the opposite of that. We've got so much data that it's really difficult to uh, even look at all of it, let alone analyze it, interpret it, and decide what to do about it. So you've got to become good at knowing what the individual's particular needs are as a coach, so in my books, one of the things I talk about a lot is something I call limiters, which is uh, race-specific weaknesses. For example, if the athlete is, is not a very good climber on the bicycle, we'll say, but there are no hills on the course, that's not a, not a limiter. It's a weakness, but it's not a limiter because there's no, there's no hills. But if it's a hilly course, now it's a limiter. So I need to decide what do I, what do I need to look at, what do I need to measure to see if the athlete, to see if we're improving the athlete's ability to uh, to climb, and so once I make that decision to start measuring these things, I don't have to pay attention to all the data. I can start looking for the pertinent data, the ones that relate to the athlete's um, limiters. And if I work on, if I really focus on the limiters, I can almost guarantee they're going to improve because I'll become aware of it, and I'll make the athlete aware of it, and we'll start thinking a lot about this topic and. Lo and behold, things begin to happen then. For a coach just starting out, is there any advice you would have for them as far as just like with all the data, it can be overwhelming. With all the information, it can be overwhelming. And it might they might find themselves in a spot where they're trying to do everything all at once. So for a new coach starting out, what should they really be focusing on? Like what are three to five things that you would tell them these are what you should focus on? Yeah, I've often thought about that in terms of myself. If I could talk to myself uh, – you know, 40 years ago, uh, the, the new coach, what would I tell, what would I have told myself to do to be, to become a, a, a good coach? And um, it's things that I, I eventually learned to do these things, but it, it wasn't like immediately I understood. But there were some things I needed, I, I discovered over time that were very valuable to me. The first thing I would, I would tell myself, and I would tell other coaches also, 
is that the most important thing is listening to your client. That, by far, is the most important thing. I've known many coaches, in fact, I've had coaches myself, who were more interested in talking than they were in listening. And uh, they don't, they're not very good coaches from my perspective. I like, this, I, I like when I have a coach of my own, and I have coaches, I'm, I, I'm involved in other sports. Uh, for example, I play golf, and I'm terrible, but I have a coach. And so the coach, what I look for in a coach is that that's one of the qualities I look for. I want a coach who will listen to me and pay attention to what I'm saying and then give me feedback on that, on that topic as opposed to some coaches I've had, for example, in golf, who simply stand on the driving range with me and tell me 32 things I should do. And every time I do one wrong, they add five more things to the list and do these things now. And when I finally hit one right, then they become a cheerleader and say, look what a great job you did, which is really patting themselves on the back for thinking they did a great job. And so consequently, it's just a total waste of time. The coaches I've found who I've worked with have always listened to me. They, and they always try to narrow it down to the, most, um, the smallest denominator and solve that problem first as opposed to trying to solve everything at the same time. And I've, so I've adapted that to my own coaching uh, so when I've worked with athletes, for example, in triathlon, one of the biggest challenges is teaching somebody how to become a good swimmer. Learning to swim correctly, fast, is much the same as trying to learn to play golf. It's a very high-skilled activity. And so over the years, I've learned how to break that down to the simplest form and what those things involve, and I've got it down to four topics. If you can do these four things, you can become a good swimmer. And it's just four things, if you can, and they're all simple. But you've got to learn to do them in the right order. You can't, you can't get them out of order. Each one's got to be done, learned separately. And as soon as we learn this, then we can go to the second and so forth. The first the most important thing is to listen to the client and, th- and then to give them feedback which is beneficial to them at that moment in time rather than trying to overwhelm them with information about what they should be doing or could be doing or you'd like to see them doing and so forth. Just what is it? What is the one thing right now? When, what's the low-hanging fruit? What's the low-hanging fruit? Find it and fix it. Measure it and fix it. That, that would be, again, a couple of things I would tell new coaches that they should be thinking in terms of is what's the low-hanging fruit and fix those things first. You should be able to get, um, a coach should be able to get performance improvements out of an athlete almost immediately if they know what they're doing. It shouldn't take weeks and months to get improvement. You should be able to make changes right away that are going to bring improvements. And that's really easy to do uh, when you bring on an athlete who's never had a coach before, especially a coach self-coached. They've made so many mistakes, it's remarkable. They're just, it's amazing they've made it this far in the sport, quite honestly. So as a coach, what you can do is you can, if you learn all these things, what have you been doing? And then begin to see what the low-hanging fruit is and change that thing Immediately, you should see a result, an improvement. So that, those are some of the things I would tell athletes, or tell coaches, rather, who are getting started. The other thing I learned, or third thing I learned over the course of many years, was that I needed to understand more about the science of training. Uh, I'd gotten my master's degree back in the 1970s in exercise science, when the most important thing you learned was how to prevent athletes foot in the locker room. That was like a big deal for sports science back in the 70s. We didn't really know anything else. So I made the decision I was going to uh, start learning in the 1980s, 
start learning more about the science of sport because now science was starting to make a some headway into uh, ideas on how to, how athletes might train. There weren't gigantic things, but they were there was some stuff starting back in the 1980s. So I made a decision that what I would do is I would get a, a stack of abstracts. I'd go to the, the college library where I lived and uh, make copies of abstracts of research studies in sports science and uh, just whatever they were, just random grabbing of, you know, of abstracts, copies, take them back to my office. And I always had a stack of abstracts on my desk. And every day when I'd wake up, the first thing I would do when I went to my office is pull one of the abstracts off the top of the, the pile and read to see if there's anything here that was valuable that I thought might, I might be able to use in coaching my athletes. If there was, then I made up a 3 by 5 card. This is, again, the 1980s. Made up a 3 by 5 card. On one side, I wrote down the summary of what the study was about and what I learned from it that I could benefit, use beneficially in my coaching. And on the other side, put the reference data, you know, the, the authors and the, the publication, all that kind of stuff. So I had a card on every study I read and did this every day, day after day, month after month, year after year. And to this day, still do it. I've been doing it now since the 1980s. And that was the best education I ever had because I began to, I read so much stuff and so many ideas that it, it prompted me to, to think and ask questions and wonder why and experiment with myself, uh, with my own athletes to see what might work better. And so out of that, that's how that methodology and philosophy of coaching of mine that I wrote the book about came about was from, you know, reading, number one, reading all that research and number two, then trying to apply it to the people I was coaching to see what benefits I might be able to get from for them from what I had learned. So the whole thing became kind of a, a mix of stuff I was doing for athletes. So I think of all the things I've done over the years, those would be the three most important things I would tell, tell a coach, a new coach. Now, you also ran a very successful coaching business with multiple coaches under you. Um, you have a pretty impressive lineage as far as I've talked to coaches, and they told me that they worked for you at one point, which is always really interesting to hear and pretty cool to see how many lives you've touched. As far as somebody, maybe a coach has been in business by themselves for a while, and now they're ready to grow their business, what kind of tips would you have for them as far as once they start to look to expand? I had a business back in the 1990s uh, before there was a... uh um, a cycle, you know, a USA Cycling Coaching uh, Commission or a USA Triathlon Coaching Commission. Uh, before those things came around, I re- I saw a, a niche that was a, that was open, which was helping coaches to be able to grow their own businesses. So I started a coaching business, which really, in today's standard, wasn't a coaching business. It was a a gathering of coaches so we could share ideas. And my role was to help them grow as coaches, grow their coaching businesses. And one of the first things I would have them do, so I, and I handpicked these coaches to come into my group, the ones I thought had good potential. And so the, one of the first things I would have them do is I'd have, there's one book I would have them read. Actually, there were, there were two books, but along the lines of coaching businesses, the, uh, the book I would have them read was a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber, G-E-R-B-E-R, the book is still still available today. He's written the follow-ups on the book now. 
but it's called the E-Myth, just capital E-M-Y-T-H. And in that book, he talks about why he doesn't believe there's really this thing that we call entrepreneurship. He says it's a myth in the United States. People who start small businesses really aren't entrepreneurs. What they are is they're technicians. They're very good at heating, venting, ventilation, and air conditioning uh, work. They can do a great job of fixing your air conditioner. So they think they ought to open a heating and air conditioning business because they know about heating and air conditioners. But what they don't understand is they don't understand. They don't really know what marketing is. They don't know what hiring and firing is. They don't know anything about uh, planning for growth of the business, taxation, loaning, b- borrowing money from banks, and the best way to get loans and the rates. And you know, they don't know anything at all about business. They know how to how to run the ship. You know how to how to, in our case as coaches, how to actually coach people. But that's not the business of coaching. That's just the the techni- technical side of coaching. So I, I would have them read that book so they could understand what running a business is really all about. There's more to it than than being able to make cupcakes, which I think is one of the examples he uses in his book. Is a cupcake company, and, and the person is trying to grow a business, but she's the only person that works there, and all she does is make cupcakes, and she's good at doing it, but she doesn't know anything at all about running a business. And so he talks about the idea is that if you really want to have a coaching business, or in his case, he talks about this cupcake business, if you really want to have a good business, you've got to learn how to run a business. And that doesn't mean being the only technician. That means you, what you need to do is begin to divert yourself from making cupcakes or coaching one-on-one people. doesn't mean stop, but just begin to move away from that and bring in people who can do it for you. And it's not until you have people who are doing the, the work and you become the business owner that you really own a business. Until that time, you're simply, you simply own a job. And so it's, it goes well beyond understanding how to coach people. That's certainly the starting place for this. But it moves way beyond that into much deeper areas outside of the expertise of physiology and, and sports science and so forth. It really gets into things that most coaches never really think about, which is what is a business and how do we, how do we, what do we do to grow a business? So that that's why I had them read this book. And it was kind of like, then we discuss it. It was eye-opening because they, they were seeing the world differently than the, what they thought it was. They thought they were going to start a coaching business so they could coach. But that really wasn't a coaching business. It was a coaching job. So there's just a difference between having a business and having a job. And so he, he talks about that and explains how to go about making that transition to owning a small business uh, instead of just being a technician who has a job. So we would start with that book, and then from that point forward, whenever the topic of business came up, we would go back to the lessons he talks about in that book to how we would go about making decisions for our, for our company or each of these individual coaches' companies so they could do a better job of, of providing services to not only to their clients but also to their assistant coaches. So it's a long process, and it's certainly more than knowing sports science. Along those same lines, there's something that still uh, I admire you um, because every morning, even to this day, you spend most of your morning responding to emails, answering tweets from coaches, um, and just basically paying it forward. And so I've heard you say before that you know the more you give it back, the more it comes back to you. And so. I, how has that played into your success, and how could coaches use that um, to their advantage? 
Yeah, that's a great topic. When I give you an example, when I when I wrote that first book I mentioned, uh, the Cyclist Training Bible, I had lots of people tell me, "Don't write the book. If you write that book and they know how to coach themselves, they won't need you anymore. You you'll be out of work." But I did it anyway because I'd, I'd come to realize over time when I when I owned the retail store back in the 1980s, I learned then that the more things I did to help people, the more I got back from those people. It was kind of like a give give to get sort of situation. Uh, if I took care of my customers, they would take great care of me. And so it became very uh, mutually beneficial uh, in the relationships I would develop. And so basically I did the same thing in in uh, in coaching. I decided to write, write that book. I, I would just tell them everything I knew. There were no secrets. It was just tell them what I, what I know about coaching, what I've been doing, why I do it, how I do it, and so forth. And quite honestly, that is the best thing I ever did for my coaching business. Uh, my po- coaching business grew tremendously after I wrote that first book just because basically I gave people something that was mine and they then came back to me and gave me what was theirs. Uh, it, so it was, it was always a strange situation to do this, but it works. It's a great thing how it, how it works to be able to, to give people what you know and what you think and what your feelings are on things because then they will tell you, give you back the same information. You can begin to trade information, train, trade ideas, and uh, not only do your relationships grow stronger, but you also grow as a person. You become a much better person because of having listened to others. The bottom line is that there's, there are no secrets in coaching. There's nothing new. We're not doing anything now that somebody else hasn't done previously. We just give it different names now than what it used to be called. Uh, but it's all been the same stuff. We just keep recycling old ideas and doing it with different names and giving it science to back it up. Uh, but there really is nothing that's new in the world of training. It's, it's still the same thing. There's only two things you can do to in a workout, then you can, you can modify the intensity, you can modify the duration. There's not been anything else invented you can stick in there besides those two things. So the more you give, the more you get back. And uh, it's kind of like, again, a philosophy of life of mine is just to, to help people whenever I can. If they ask, somebody asks me a question on Twitter, I will ask it, or I will answer it. But there are, quite honestly, though, there are times, very rare times, where somebody begins to take advantage of that. I, I can only remember... One time in the last year when somebody began to take advantage of me, basically is getting, asking for free coaching you know, every day as a question they want to answer about their training workout that day. And so at some place you, you may have to draw the line, but it's amazing how, how people are more concerned about my time than I am sometimes. You know, I, I get an email from somebody that wants to ask a question. They'll almost always start by saying, I know you're busy. I'm sorry to do this, but would you answer this question for me? And, and if I can, I will. Often I can't because they're, the questions are just, they're in areas that I, I don't know enough about them to be able to answer the questions. But nevertheless, if I can, I will certainly give it a try. But um, people are really good about being able to, about giving back to you because you gave to them. It's, I think in, it's not just coaching, it's not just business, it's really life, I think, is the way you, you get the most out of that. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, and I think that's um, really great advice, give to get, kind of words to live by. Before we part ways here, do you have any kind of parting advice for a coach, any words of wisdom? Uh, gosh, uh, there's been so much covered already that I kind of sit, consider 
foundational to my way of seeing the world, and especially coaching, since that's important to me. Um, I don't know what I can really add on to that that I haven't already talked about. Um, but I can tell you that um, uh, the world is growing very rapidly right now, and trying to keep up with it is becoming much more difficult. So it, compared with when I started coaching, it's actually more difficult now than it was because there's so much stuff out there. Uh, but that also means there's lots of potential clients out there. There's lots of people who would like to be able to, to use power meters more, effect, more effectively. Um, there are lots of people who would like to train for events that, you know, when I first started coaching, there weren't that many people. Now, there's, now there are a lot of people who would like to train for events. All, the, the biggest challenge most coaches run into is making themselves known. Um, somehow people have to learn that they're a coach and that they know what they're doing, they do a good job, and they can help you. And you don't, that doesn't happen just because you hang out a shingle that says coach. It happens because you work at it. You really spend a lot of time um, cultivating your relationships with not only uh, the athletes but also the sport, being available at the sport, working with the, with the federations, um, being available at races, uh, helping people wherever you can along the way. And all these things will, will, will evolve over time to help you grow a business and become, you know, the, have the coaching business that, that you want to have eventually. But it's just going to take a lot of, a lot of um, work on your part to get there, and it's not going to happen immediately. Great. I, I think that's um, really great advice. And so speaking of being well-known, um, you've got a blog, you've, you're on Twitter. Where can, um, pe- where can the listeners follow you? Um, I've got a blog I've had since like 2007. It's at uh, joefreelsblog.com. And that's Joe, by the way, not Joel. joefreelsblog.com. Uh, and a lot of my blogs have been posted on Training Peaks on the blog there, so you can find other stuff I've, I've written there. And Twitter is at jfreel.com. Um, and I'm, if, you, if athletes have questions there, I'm happy to answer them if they're, you know, obviously to the point and, and, uh, and it's answerable. Some of the questions aren't answerable because I don't know enough about the athlete, but general questions, I, I get those all the time. You know, what do I do about periodization or, or what do you think I ought to do when I have this type of a situation come up in a workout? You know, there's all kinds of things that I've, I've answered um, all, really on a daily basis, for athletes, and I'm happy to help out if I can, but there's just some things I, I can't help out on. So feel free to, to write me an email, jfreel at trainingbible.com, uh, or, or Twitter, or my blog where you can also post a question. Great. Thank you very much for your time, sure. Joe. Happy to, Dave. To find out where to follow Joe and a list of the resources mentioned in this episode, check out the Training Peaks blog. If you're enjoying the Training Peaks Coachcast, please be sure to subscribe and share, and let us know what else you would like to learn about by leaving reviews or tweeting to us at at Training Peaks. Until next time.